When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of All My Movies, where I take one of my movies off the shelf, talk about the making of it, my personal memories of it. It's just a fun walk through my collection and hopefully a fun walk through some of your favorite or, in the case of this month, perhaps least favorite movies, because as we enter February, we're entering our first theme month for the podcast. This is Bad Movie Month. And when I announced that this was going to be the theme last week, a lot of people said, like, no, Dan, we want to talk about movies you love, not movies you hate. Well, I will say these are not all movies that I hate. A lot of these movies are deliciously bad. They're movies that I love to watch because they're bad. However, this week's movie is a movie that I hate. 2014's Transformers Age of Extinction, the fourth in the Transformers franchise, and one that I really did not find it enjoyable to sit through again. However, I came to look at it with a brand new perspective, a perspective that surprised even me. So we're going to talk about the movie, really go through it beat by crazy beat, and go into some new discoveries that I made as I was watching the making of the film. But before we get into all that, I want to thank you for watching us. If you're watching on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, or if you're listening to us as an audio podcast, I really appreciate your time. If you are a viewer and you want to hear the show, you can check us out on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, wherever you find your audio podcasts. And if you're listening to us and you want to check out the video, version you can find the show on youtube on the schmodown entertainment network okay let's get to this week's movie transformers age of extinction and right away the question some of you might be asking is dan if you hate this movie so much why is it part of your collection and you know when you love somebody you take on the good things about them and the bad and transformers age of extinction was definitely the worst thing about mara when we got together when we moved in we combined our movie collection there was a lot of overlap however she had received this movie as a gift from somebody i don't even remember who thus it is now part of our collection and my collection but i do think that good movies and bad movies are both interesting to break down for different reasons and as we go through this month i think we're going to see why each movie could be regarded as good or bad, sometimes simultaneously both, for all of these different reasons. Before we jump into Age of Extinction, a little bit of background information if you're not familiar with what the Transformers are. The Transformers started off as a toy line and a cartoon series back in 1984, featuring Optimus Prime, who was the leader of the heroic Autobots fighting against the evil Decepticons and their leader, Megatron. Transformers! The Transformers TV series ran through 1987 with a big event, the Transformers animated movie, happening in 1986. But the show and the toys lived well past the run of the original TV series. And so, as the turn of the 21st century came and a proposed adaptation of the G.I. Joe toy line was delayed, Paramount and Hasbro turned their eyes toward adapting Transformers into the next big feature film franchise. 
The Transformers live-action franchise entered active development in the year 2003, and in 2004, they landed a big name, Steven Spielberg, to serve as an executive producer on the films. And in 2005, action director Michael Bay signed on to direct the first film in the franchise. All of the first three films starred Shia LaBeouf as Sam Witwicky, a normal California team who is befriended by Optimus Prime, and the two of them spend three movies defending the world from the evil Decepticons, who are led again by Megatron. It's you and me, Megatron. No, it's just me, Prime. At the end of this day, one shall stand, one shall fall. While the third Transformers film, Transformers Dark of the Moon, was the most financially successful of the franchise worldwide, it had crossed over a billion dollars, that was the first Transformers film to do so, there were already some signs that the franchise needed a new coat of paint. First of all, one of the stars of the original two films, Megan Fox, had already been fired from the series after she said of director Michael Bay, quote, He wants to be like Hitler on his sets, and he is, so he's a nightmare to work for. With Megan Fox already out, star Shia LaBeouf also announced that he was going to be gone after the third film in the series, and originally, Michael Bay announced his departure from the franchise as well, although he would be lured back to direct this movie, the fourth installment, as well as the fifth installment, Transformers The Last Night. Transformers Dark of the Moon also showed signs of fading domestically with a $50 million drop-off between the second film, Revenge of the Fallen, and the third film, Dark of the Moon. But its international take improved by over $300 million from film to film as the global worldwide box office market began to expand. And so a decision was made to give the entire franchise an overhaul with an eye on a more global perspective and a new cast. Mark Wahlberg was cast as the new lead of the franchise, Texan inventor Cade Yeager, while Nicola Peltz was cast as his daughter Tessa, with Jack Rayner playing her race car driving boyfriend Shane. T.J. Miller was also added to the ensemble as Lucas, Cade's ill-fated best friend. Adding prestige to the cast were Stanley Tucci as corporate mogul Joshua Joyce, Kelsey Grammer as government puppet master Harold Attinger, and Titus Welliver as Enforcer James Savoy. In key supporting roles, the film also added Sophia Miles and Lee Bing Bing. Full disclosure, I was never a huge fan of the Transformers franchise, and I, and I don't just mean the films, I mean everything in general. I wasn't allowed to watch the show when I grew up because it was too violent, so I brought none of that nostalgia to anything that so many of my other friends did. I saw the first film, 2007's Transformers, on DVD, and I thought it was a little long, but I liked it okay. It wasn't the best thing I'd ever seen, but it wasn't the worst. The second film, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, gave me as close to a migraine headache as I could possibly imagine having. I was watching it in preparation to do the Honest trailer at my computer, and I had to get up a few times and just walk around because the movie was making me physically anxious. It was so frenetic and scattered and all over the place. <laughs> The third film, Transformers Dark of the Moon, left me largely apathetic. At this point, it really had just beaten me into submission. But with the semi-reboot, you've got Mark Wahlberg now in the lead, you have a new storyline. I went into Transformers Age of Extinction hopeful that this would be the Transformers movie for me. Instead, it ended up being the Transformers movie that I hated the most. And it wasn't even close. So to appreciate my thoughts on Transformers Days of Extinction, and if you haven't seen it really, just to educate you on this movie, why don't we just revisit the movie beat by beat? I'll point out some of the things that I noticed as I was watching it. It'll be fun, and it'll be about mm, two and a half hours shorter than the actual movie, so it's really just a great catch-up. 
We open the movie in dinosaur times when we see some spaceships hovering over Earth and dropping a strange bomb that covers the Earth's surface with this melting, molten lava stuff. It turns out that asteroids didn't kill the dinosaurs. Transformers did. Then we move on to, as it's called on screen, Texas, USA, where American picker Cade Yeager and his best friend Lucas are scavenging in an old movie theater looking for stuff to reinvent and build. The movies nowadays, that's the trouble. Sequels and remakes, bunch of crap. Yeah, that's the old let's lampshade the tired sequel joke where you think if you point out the fact that you're in a tired sequel that it excuses the fact that it is a tired sequel. Doesn't work for me in this movie. Also something I wanted to point out that seems a little weird about this scene, it seems like the movie wants us to believe that Cade and Lucas are the same age. Remember this place when we were kids? How many girls do you think you brought here in high school? Hey, heads! Why they make the varsity team. For the record, TJ Miller is actually the age that both characters apparently are supposed to be, which would be 34, 35 years old. Mark Wahlberg is, in my opinion, noticeably 10 years older than that. But really, we're just supposed to buy into this relationship between these two friends. And they're obviously very close because shortly after this scene, Lucas is very comfortable telling Cade that he thinks his 17-year-old daughter is hot. Sweetheart, your shorts are shrinking by the second, okay? I think she looks hot. What did you say? Like a hot teen, Ager. Cade and Lucas find an old beat-up truck in the movie theater, and this truck turns out to be Optimus Prime, who has gone into exile because after the huge events of the last film, a rogue government agency going by the codename Cemetery Wind and headed by government agent Kelsey Grammer has been hunting down Transformers, both friend and foe, and melting them down. All Autobots are being hunted. We're all in danger. The government raid that we see at the very beginning of this film actually has one of the most face-palmingly obvious errors that I've ever seen in any movie. At one point, we see a bank of monitors, and several of these monitors in several different shots very obviously have the color chroma key green on them. So if you don't know what chroma key green is, when visual effects artists are doing their work, there are a couple of colors that they use. One of them is blue, the other one's green. That's why you hear blue screen and green screen. They're basically very unnatural colors and things that are very easy to either cut around so if you want to cut out somebody's shape or if you want to put something over an image you put those colors in so it's easy to tell a computer to take that color out there is no other use of that color there is no other thing that makes that color so when you have that color on these monitors it means that either they were too lazy to replace them or they ran out of time and that's what I think it's either that somebody made a very bad decision to put this green color on these monitors or somebody spent way too much time animating Optimus Prime lips. I still don't understand how they work. He's a metal machine. How do the lips actually move? Plus, he doesn't need to move his lips to talk. He has like a voice box. You know what? I'm going down a hole. If we do this, we're going to be here all day. Anyway, there are monitors in the movie that have had no effects done to them. I noticed it in the theater. I thought, oh, they'll fix that for the home release. Yeah, they didn't do it for that either. The government is being assisted on these Transformer raids by a different Transformer named Lockdown. Now, there are two different kinds of Transformers that we're used to seeing. Autobots, the good guys, and Decepticons, the bad guys. Lockdown is neither one of them. He's kind of like a third-party Transformer who's been sent to Earth by 
other Transformers off planet to find Optimus Prime. And I'm pointing this out because this is just the first of many complicated Transformer social connections that we're gonna have to make during this film. So it's easiest if we just catch up as we go along. So good guys, Autobots, bad guys, Decepticons, third party, Lockdown, still a bad guy, but neither one of those two. We also see a couple of meetings between Lockdown and Kelsey Grammer that result in some really crackling dialogue. On this planet we have a saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I also have a saying, I don't care. You see, Agent Kelsey Grammer is very, very eager to get Optimus Prime and all the Transformers off the planet because he just really hates Transformers. He doesn't trust them. He's called Optimus Prime, alien combatant, here illegally. But because everybody needs two motivations, Kelsey Grammer doesn't just hate Transformers, he's also helping Lockdown find Optimus Prime so that Lockdown will give him a device called the Seed. The Seed is a bomb that when detonated will basically carpet the surrounding area with a rare element called Transformium. Very creative, right? Transforming can basically take on any shape that you want. And so a company named KSI is in league with Kelsey Grammer to get the seed from him and pay him off in a bunch of stock options so that he can get rich. So we have Lockdown who needs to find Optimus Prime so that he can get the seed to Kelsey Grammer so that he can give the seed to KSI so that KSI can get a bunch of Transformium and get rich and give Kelsey Grammer a bunch of stock options and then he'll get rich too. Are you with me so far? Back in Texas, USA, Cade Yeager discovers that the truck he found is no ordinary truck. I think we just found a transformer. Cade is able to figure this out because he's an inventor. I'm an inventor. This could be a game changer for me. If I can apply that technology to my inventions, we never have to worry about money again. Optimus Prime is reactivated and it's just in the nick of time because government agents are hot on his trail and they've brought even more crackling dialogue. Search the property. What do you mean search the property? You don't have a warrant. My face. Federal agents destroy Cade's house, and I'm pretty sure they're about to murder his daughter when Tessa's boyfriend Shane shows up and punches a federal agent with his car. The chase culminates in a big stunt sequence that ends with the humans running from an admittedly really cool looking vintage Michael Bay explosion that tragically kills TJ Miller's character. This is immediately followed by a protracted dialogue where Johnny Racecar, who is, by the way, Irish, explains to Mark Wahlberg why it's legal for him, a 20-year-old, to have sex with Mark Wahlberg's 17-year-old daughter. Don't believe me? Here it is. How old are you? 20. She's a 17-year-old girl. I just call the cops on you because this is illegal. She's a minor. We're protected by the Romeo and Juliet laws. I wasn't joking. We dated for a little while. I was a sophomore and he was a senior. It's fine. No, it's not fine. We've got a pre-existing juvenile foundation relationship. But wait, there's more. Statute 2705-3. What? Texas statute? That a real law? It's really worth noting at this point that screenplays don't just materialize out of nowhere like they're made out of some kind of transformium. As a matter of fact, they're written by a person. In this case, Aaron Kruger, who is the credited screenwriter for this movie. It would have been just as easy to not write Mark Wahlberg's daughter as a character who's 17. She could have been 18, for example. Or you could have just avoided the subject altogether since it has absolutely no relevance to anything that happens in the rest of the movie. Instead, a conscious decision was made to take this side road and go into the very nitty-gritty specific about why these two characters are allowed to have sex with each other. 
Is your dad okay with you dating a 17-year-old girl? He took off when I was five, but if I ever bump into him, I'll ask him. What's even more unbelievable is that this interaction made it through several different rounds of notes. Script notes, shooting the scene on set, sitting in the edit bay and watching the movie back, preview audiences. It appears like nobody was ever able to make a meaningful argument as to why this scene shouldn't be included in the movie. And so, here it is in all its glory. Do you think it's weird that the movie takes a specific side road to explain the intricacies of having sex with 17-year-old girls in Texas? You bet. But let's move on anyway. Optimus Prime then takes the humans to meet the only remaining Autobots. We have Bumblebee, who's been an Autobot since the very beginning. He was on his way to getting his own spinoff film that was set in the 1980s. We also have a gruff, hard-shooting robot named Hound, who's voiced by John Goodman. There's Crosshairs, an Autobot who wears a Transformers coat. And we have a samurai Autobot named Drift, who's voiced by Ken Watanabe. Loyalty's but a flower in the winds of fear and temptation. What the hell are you saying? It's a haiku. No comment. Optimus Prime is determined to prove that the Autobots are not here to hurt humanity by swearing a blood oath against the humans who are hunting them. I have sworn to never kill humans, but when I find out who's behind this... He's going to die. Hey, before we go any further, did I mention that Transformers Age of Extinction is 2 hours and 45 minutes long? Because it is a brisk 10 minutes shorter than The Godfather and longer than The Bridge on the River Kwai, which means at this point in the movie, we are still introducing main characters. But why not? This is a movie that is two This Is Spinal Taps long. And so let's meet the head of KSI, Joshua Joyce, played by the Tooch, Stanley Tucci. Algorithms! Why can't we make what we want to make the way we want to make it? Don't forget KSI is the company that has plans to mine. Transformium. That's what we're calling it. Focus grouped. Catchy. Trademarked. Yeah. We also get our first look at Transformium itself, and it turns out that in addition to being able to take the shape of anything that you want, Transformium also allows you to easily fulfill contractually mandated product placement deals. Do you like music? The pill. But because this plot isn't confusing enough yet, KSI is also building their own set of Transformers, led by a machine that's still in development named Galvatron. I modeled Galvatron after Optimus Prime. Why does he keep looking like Megatron? As it turns out though, Galvatron's body is just being used as a vessel for the mind of Megatron who's infiltrated its programming. So now, at this point in the movie, we have four distinct sets of Transformers. We have the good guys led by Optimus Prime, the Autobots. We have the KSI Transformers, which are their own thing. We have Lockdown, who's there from Cybertron, the Transformer home planet, to find Optimus Prime. And we have Megatron, who's the head of the Decepticons, who has infiltrated the KSI Transformers in order to turn their Transformers into Decepticons. It's as complicated as it is completely and needlessly useless. So then the KSI faux Transformers fight the Autobot real Transformers, which results in this shot of Optimus Prime and Bumblebee flying through the air, protecting all the humans who they're transporting, which even I will admit is a pretty badass shot. Then Lockdown and his squad of Transformers interrupt the fight between Optimus Prime's Autobots and the KSI Transformers to finally bag his bounty, Optimus Prime himself. You were built, and your creators want you back. We all work for someone. So to recap, 
Galvatron works for Kelsey Grammer, but actually works for the creators on Cybertron, and the KSI Transformers work for Stanley Tucci, who works for Kelsey Grammer, except they don't really work for Stanley Tucci, they work for Megatron, who works for nobody. And if you're confused, don't worry, because we're only halfway through the movie. We will continue our journey through the Age of Extinction in just one moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. You say you want to eat better, but let's be honest, a lot of the stuff out there doesn't taste very good, it doesn't fill those cravings, and it doesn't fill you up. Well, this episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but have less than one gram of sugar. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars have just one gram of sugar, two grams of net carbs, and they're only 140 calories. They're perfect for anybody that's following the keto lifestyle, but they're also perfect for somebody who just wants to eat better, is looking for a healthier snack. It's so easy to just grab something salty, something sugary, real junk food if I want to eat something fast. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars are a satisfying, fast snack for me that allows me to get back to work and not have to stop down or hit that sugar wall. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars have a soft and chewy texture, and they come in great flavors like coconut cocoa chip, maple pecan, and peanut butter. And I've said this before about other stuff from Monk Pack, but you cannot substitute a great peanut butter snack for me. That's what I love about these Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars. I can have that peanut butter retreat, and I don't have to feel bad about it because I'm not eating a lot of sugar, and I'm not eating a lot of calories. They're great for a quick breakfast, something to grab between Zoom calls, or a late-night treat. And they are gluten-free, grain-free, plant-based, and non-GMO. Plus, you can shop online, which means you can avoid another trip to the store by having Monk Pack delivered right to your door. Try it for yourself, and you'll see. And we have a special deal for our listeners. You can get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code MOVIES at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident in their product that it is backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product you want. Then enter our code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack delicious, nutritious food you can count on, and we'd like to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. A deal is done. One prime for one seed. Handle it with care. Lockdown hands the seed, the Transformer bomb, over to KSI and Kelsey Grammer, and then prepares to take off into space with his bounty, Optimus Prime. But Tess has gotten swept up in this whole thing, and so she is now also on Lockdown's ship. So now, Cade and Johnny Racecar have to get onto the spaceship, and there's this whole 20-minute action sequence that honestly could have been completely cut from the movie and wouldn't have made that much difference. Is it a big action sequence and some shots to put in the trailer? Sure it is. Is it something that looked probably pretty cool in IMAX 3? I'll grant you that, but honestly, we end in the exact same spot at the end of this sequence that we did when it started, which is that Lockdown is still searching for Optimus Prime, everybody is still trying to chase after the seed. This costs tens of millions of dollars. You could have trimmed probably 30-40 million dollars out of the movie and a half hour out of the runtime by not doing the sequence, but it's Michael Bay, it's Transformers, they want to go bigger, but I don't think they went better. Long story short, there's a big aerial battle over Chicago. Optimus Prime escapes lockdown ship without him noticing. Tessa is rescued, and Mark Wahlberg enjoys a delicious Bud Light. Is your car? Huh? 
Normally, this is the third act action climax of the film and the credits would start to roll, but there's still one hour left in this sucker, so pack your bags because we're going to China. Joshua Joyce is headed to his factory in Guangzhou, China. That's right, China. A decision that definitely didn't have anything to do with the fact that the movie was co-financed by a big Chinese company. We just want to visit a great country that's full of delicious milk products. and a resourceful central government that will protect its citizens at all costs. We gotta call the central government for help. And as I mentioned, now that there's an hour left in the movie, with a mere hour and 45 minutes of Transformers Age of Extinction in the rearview mirror, it's time to introduce yet another main plot of the film, as Megatron attempts to steal the seed for himself and detonate it in a major city, thereby wiping out a huge portion of humanity and using the Transformium to build a Transformer army for himself to reconquer Earth with a new army of Decepticons. With this new threat on the horizon, Cade and Stanley the Tucci are able to bond over their common profession, even though Cade Yeager is a failed amateur inventor from Texas, and Stanley Tucci is basically Jeff Bezos. Look, I know you have a conscience because you're an inventor like me. Do not let Galvatron anywhere near that seed. Galvatron slash Megatron is awakened, and because this movie is oh so needlessly complicated, he provides us with actually a very helpful reminder of exactly who he is. Now everybody's on the run in Hong Kong, and and really it's just pandemonium. People are trying to find the seed, or blow up the seed, or shoot each other. You know, it doesn't really matter at this point. Mark Wahlberg knocks Titus Welliver out of the window with a football. But bottom line, some of the Autobots and the good humans eventually find themselves outnumbered and outgunned by the fake KSI Transformers who are now all under the control of Galvatron slash Megatron. And so Optimus Prime decides it is time to awaken the Dinobots. That's right, the Dinobots! You know, the Transformers that most of the marketing materials of this movie were centered solely around, that show up for 5 minutes, 30 minutes before the end of the movie? The Dinobots! Hope you're still awake, kids! Defend my family or die. So now we have our fifth Transformer faction. With Lockdown and his Transformers still in space, we have Optimus Prime and the Autobots teaming up with the Dinobots against the KSI fake Transformers who are now really Decepticons that are led by Megatron. We get lots and lots of fighting and shooting, a lot of big Michael Bay explosions, people jumping up in the air, and then this shot, which is really just kind of weaponized chaos, just metal flipping and falling through some point in space and time. But finally, the fake KSI Transformers slash Decepticons are defeated just in time for the real bad guys to show up. That's right. Lockdown noticed that Optimus Prime is gone, and so he and his Transformers are back from space, and they are very upset at the idea of somebody else wasting their seed. So they decide to suck up all the metal in Hong Kong and then just kind of drop it on everybody. You know, like General Zod in Man of Steel. Oh my god! Let's be honest, by this point your brain is probably mush, I know mine certainly was, so it doesn't really matter, but there's only 20 more minutes of the movie left, just enough time for the final showdown, a one-on-one fight between Optimus Prime and Lockdown at an old silo factory or something that's definitely set in Hong Kong, but that somebody forgot to take the famous Sears slash Willis Tower in Chicago out of the background of. 
Optimus Prime makes good on his threat to kill Fraser Crane. And also some random guy standing next to Cade Yeager just gets blown into oblivion. Who is he? Never seen him before. Is it explained who he is? Not a chance. There's just too much going on. Finally, Optimus Prime runs his sword through lockdown and ends the third most threatening faction of Transformers that are in this movie. And Megatron, who I guess was kind of watching from a hillside like the rest of us, just kind of ambles his way off into the next movie. We shall meet again, Prime. Optimus Prime thanks the Dinobots for their service, which will almost certainly result in a boost of toy sales for this film, and they also gallop off into the sequel. And then Optimus Prime leaves the planet to dispose of the seed and find the creators who sent Lockdown to find him, carrying the only kind of message he knows, a threat of violence. Leave planet Earth alone, because I'm coming for you. And then the end credits roll to the song Battle Cry by Imagine Dragons, which I will freely admit I really like. Transformers Age of Extinction was released on June 27th, 2014 in the United States and Canada, and it would ultimately become the lowest grossing Transformers film domestically, dropping almost $100 million from the preceding film Transformers Dark of the Moon. That didn't matter though, because it also took in over $300 million in China, which at that time topped Avatar to become the highest grossing film ever released in the country. This was also the first Transformers film that I saw in a theater. I saw it at the Vista Theater in Los Angeles, one of my favorite theaters in town, a great single screen theater that I really hope makes it through everything that's going on right now. And I hated this movie. Right around the time we got to that action climax in the skies over Chicago and I looked at my watch and realized that there was an hour left in this movie, I didn't care about anybody. I I didn't want to see how it ended. I really had no interest. I wanted to just get up and leave and never think about it again. But I stayed because I was working for Screen Junkies at the time and I knew that we were going to be doing an honest trailer for this movie and I wanted to start writing it in my head as soon as possible. So I stayed, I watched the rest of it, and then we did end up writing an honest trailer together for this movie. As part of a gag, we wrote the last third of the trailer in Chinese because we thought if the movie does the last third in China, then it'd be funny to do the last third of the honest trailer in China, basically saying that we're going to pander to the Chinese audience much the same way the film did. Hey guys, why is the rest of this trailer written in Chinese? Hey! As timing would have it, a very nice lady came to record the Chinese lines, and I was the only person that was available at the time to record with her. So we went into the literal closet that was our recording booth, and you know we had the script in English, and she would sit and translate what we were supposed to say, and then she would do the lines, you know, into our recorder, and then she would look up at me and she'd go, "How was that?" I don't speak Chinese. I don't even really know how Chinese is supposed to sound. So I just would say, sounded great. And then we go on to the next one. So I honestly don't know how the Chinese sounds in the Transformers Age of Extinction Honest trailer. I hope it sounds good, but she went to me for my approval. So I guess ultimately I'll take the credit if it didn't sound good. But to be honest, I didn't really know how it was supposed to sound to begin with. I'll still take the heat though. 
In a weird way, though, Transformers Age of Extinction was both a high point and the point of no return for this franchise because it did cement the fact that it was a waning franchise domestically. 2017's Transformers The Last Night would only gross $130 million in the U.S. and Canada, which was a far cry from the heights of the $400 million gross of Revenge of the Fallen just eight years previously. The worldwide gross for the next film would also fall drastically by over half a billion dollars to just over $600 million, which is largely because the Chinese film market, even just the three years between films, grew exponentially. It just seems that audiences kind of had a been there, done that feel for these films. Bumblebee, which was a much hyped and actually critically well-regarded spinoff film, also didn't perform great uh, anywhere in the world. It did fine, but not exceptionally well. And we're kind of in a no-man's land right there with these Transformers films. There have been talks of a reboot, there's been talks of a Bumblebee sequel, or some kind of a continuation of sorts of the live-action films, but with even more of a refresh start. But this is the first time since the early 2000s where the long-term future of the Autobots and the Decepticons really does seem to be in doubt, at least on movie screens. Ever since watching this film, my mind has kind of made up these preconceived notions about particularly Michael Bay because I see things like the green screen monitor, the Willis slash Sears tower in the background of that shot, the utter contempt for anything regarding a three-act story structure, and I just kind of thought, Michael Bay doesn't care. He's phoning it in. He's lazy. He's just cashing a paycheck. But I sat down and watched the special features on this disc, as I do for all the discs. And I'm actually very happy that this movie had a wealth of over three hours of behind-the-scenes making of stuff because I actually think that my preconceived notions about Michael Bay were entirely wrong. When you look at the making of this movie, you don't see a lackadaisical director who's in it for a paycheck, and you certainly don't see a sleepwalking crew. You see a group of really talented artisans who are doing everything they possibly can to make the impossible possible, whether that is hand carving and detailing a remodeled version of the cars used in the movie. There's a lot of effort and heart and soul that go into each of the vehicles that we make. When all is said and done, this car will probably have around 3,000 hours in it. Or a prop department building the massive swords that are actually physically there on lockdown ship. Some of the swords were 30 feet long. They're enormous, and they were hung up on these giant hooks. You see locations crews and camera departments lugging equipment to film in magical locations that had never been filmed in at the scale before. Most of the crew walks down 1,263 steps to get into the canyon. Every day, everybody walks in and out. But most importantly, and this is the first time I've really seen this kind of footage in depth and in detail, you see Michael Bay at work. And watching him make this movie, you can tell that this is a guy who loves making movies. And when I say he loves making movies, I don't mean that he kind of loves the concept of making movies as a concept. I mean, he likes getting in it. Watch this footage. He's running around. He's shouting things into a bullhorn. He is so dedicated to the cinematic nature of everything that he's seeing. I never honestly thought that he was that energized of a director. I thought that he was just kind of looking at explosions on a monitor and saying like, eh, whatever. No, this guy loves every day that he's on a movie set. Now, I do want to be very clear about something else. It does look like, from Michael Bay's words and from the people that are interviewed in a lot of these features, that working for Michael Bay is an absolute nightmare. 
guys, guys, I don't need all you in the street. What do I need all you in the street for? First the dress down and then... Oh, no, the dress down only happens once in a while when I freak out. And he keeps us on our toes, too. We don't always get a lot of warning when he wants to talk to us. You then have two actors that are scared of heights. That's a whole other issue you got to deal with. I'm afraid heights, but you basically get in their face and say, what are you doing? You're going to get up there. These guys are pros. Get on a cable. Let's go. But I've got to be honest that Michael Bay is more of a visionary than I gave him credit for. He is committed to getting stuff in camera. He's always looking for new kinds of technologies to make his filmmaking more immersive. He is dedicated unflinchingly to the scale and scope of the movies that he's making so that they can be enjoyed on the big screen. As a matter of fact, the more that I thought about Michael Bay and the more that I watched him make movies, the more he seemed like another filmmaker working today who's praised for these same qualities. Christopher Nolan. Is it too out of the box to speculate that if Michael Bay committed his time to projects that had better screenplays, that turned out better in the end, that if he was a little less outwardly egocentric, a little less dismissive of his actors, able to get his thoughts across perhaps in a less confrontational way, that he could be regarded as one of the greater filmmakers working today? In the 14 years almost since the first Transformers came out, Michael Bay has only done three movies that aren't Transformers films. If we were to roll back time, let's say he never signed on to that first Transformers film, and he'd done two or three action movies that were on a scale of a movie like The Rock, or even one like Armageddon. Isn't it possible that he would have a much better reputation amongst film fans and, honestly, film critics than he does today? It's a really intriguing idea, and it makes me want to see Michael Bay make a movie where he's paired with a great writer, and maybe somebody who has a little more care over something besides just the cinematic look of everything and the bigness of it. Because there are so many qualities that are admirable in what he's doing. Qualities that, for years, I've never given him credit for. Now, I've given him a lot of crap, and I think a lot of it is deserved. The aspect ratio changes in the last night are not the informed choices that you would expect from a director who's really committed to a seamless cinematic vision. However, I do have to admit that watching these things, watching the craft behind this movie, I have severely underestimated Michael Bay's passion for filmmaking and his ability as a filmmaker. I don't think that excuses the way he acts towards a lot of his people on set. I don't think that means that his movies are any better in retrospect. As a matter of fact, re-watching this movie was a chore for me. It was a slog. I never want to watch this movie again for my entire life. But I do have a newfound respect for a lot of the artists that made it. People that I didn't think to show respect to earlier. People who I have shown disrespect to earlier. Filmmaking is a hard endeavor. No film is easy to make. It doesn't matter how big or small it is. And sometimes when a movie comes out that you don't like, like Transformers Age of Extinction, it's easy to overlook the people that worked really, really hard to make it. And this is something that may inform how I look at other movies as I'm going forward. Does it change my opinion of this movie? No, it doesn't change my opinion of this movie one bit. However, it does change my opinion of Michael Bay. I do see him now as a filmmaker who does deeply care about what he's doing. I just wish that he deeply cared about things that were better. As I mentioned, this Blu-ray copy of Transformers Age of Extinction is packed with some great special features, including an interview with Michael Bay about his philosophy on action, which is about what you would expect. It's just, here's the menu of what I need to make my shots. I will tell you on the day, this is how we're going to do it. And let's cut this meeting short because I have other meetings to attend to. There's also a series of documentaries that run about two hours in total about the making and development of this movie, including one about the casting and inception of the film. Maybe I don't even say the man. 
Mandarin thing. Just say, you know I can't understand you when you're angry. <laughs> like, just totally disregard the thing. Do you know what I mean? The vehicles and car stunts in the movie. This is the 1959 Racing Stingray, and it also has a little Hollywood history also because Elvis Presley drove this car in a movie, Clam Bake. A feature about shooting in small town Texas. Well, we're in Taylor, Texas. Um, small town. Yeah, it's a pretty quiet town. Nothing really happens. Nothing big. A look at filming the variety of different scenes that were shot in Detroit, Michigan. Right, we all got soaked in there. <laughs> the film's move to shooting in China. Just another day in Michael Bay world. A rundown of bringing the Dinobots to the big screen. Well, now we've got Grimlock, the dinosaur head with Optimus Prime riding along. And it's like classic Western shots, only it's a robot on a dinosaur. And a look at the process of editing and doing the special effects for the film. Optimus Prime is, uh, it's not a tongue-in-cheek thing. I had uh, the influence of a brother and uh, a former Marine. Roll out! Didn't like it. <clears throat> I get to do my brother, you know, because that's pretty much what he was, that, uh, that hero that, to me. And a pretty insightful and interesting documentary about the artists at Hasbro designing and building a Grimlock toy that was released in conjunction with the movie. I'm just going to quickly inspect the part to make sure it looks pretty good. There are many colors. We actually hand mix each color with lacquer paint. And that pretty much wraps it up for Transformers Age of Extinction. It took me to some places that I didn't expect. I hope it took you to some places that you might not have expected, or perhaps at least it was a fun walk down memory lane. Or most importantly, perhaps it saved you the two hours and 45 minutes it takes to watch this film. Although, as I mentioned, there were some very impressive technical aspects to the movie. Next week, we move on from a bad movie that I don't particularly enjoy watching to one that I am very much looking forward to revisiting. It is the kind of movie that I sort of cackle as I watch in the theaters. The 2017 D Devlin weather disaster film Geostorm with my three favorite words in the English language starring Gerard Butler. It is hilariously bad and I can't wait to recap it with all of you but until then it's time to go back on the shelf. See you next time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.